0: Hello there, and welcome to the RT Radio 1 Davis Now Lectures podcast, a reshaping for the 21st century of the iconic 20th century RT Thomas Davis Lectures, which considered radio to be a university of the air, sharing the scholarship and creative thinking that shapes public decision-making and makes sense of our present selves. I'm Cleonan Ianloon, its producer. This episode introduces the series of lectures, Making Home, and its consulting editor, architectural historian, Dr Ellen Rowley. This RTE series was made with the support of the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland and academic partner, University College Dublin.
1: Home, a house or household, where one lives or where one's roots are, an environment offering affection and security the place of one's dwelling or nurturing, where important decisions are made. It's all-encompassing. Home as a state of mind, home as an aspiration, as much as home a physical place. There's the artisan dwelling, homes for the elderly, the flat block, homes for those with different abilities, the direct provision centre, and not to mention the Celtic Tiger House extension. I'm Ellen Rowley and I'm an architectural historian and consultant editor of the RTE Davis Now lecture series Making Home. Making Home. You hear the word making there, that active verb making, deliberately suggesting something in process, something ongoing. Because as you'll hear, The series distills and brings important research and scholarship on home today in Ireland and beyond. And by today, I mean the past, present and future todays. In this Davis Now lecture series, we move around the country presenting the lectures at different locations. Each has its own public audience. And the varying lecture venues become characters in the story of making home. An 18th century grand townhouse in our capital city. A 19th century workhouse on the edge of a small County Kilkenny town. A community and enterprise centre built in a 20th century suburban Limerick neighbourhood. A rural Donegal Glebe House and a former convent home in the heart of Cork City. But why these locations? And what have they to say about making home? In this introductory programme, I meet up with people who share with us aspects of these buildings and their stories around home. Dr Edric MacParland is a leading authority on 18th century Irish architecture. Here I meet him at 11 Parnell Square, the venue for our first lecture he brings us up up to the very top of the house and tells us about its earliest residents and the spaces of their home
2: the history of this house from the 1750s up to the 20th century anyway is characteristic of a great deal of what's happened to the houses and homes of 18th century dublin built by a builder developer he built us and others in the square and it was taken over then by john butler one of the butlers of Kilkenny Castle. A bit of great luck came to him 40 years after the house was built, uh, got back the title of Earl of Ormond, which had been denied to the family in the early parts of the 18th century. So he lived here, and I think that you can trace changes which he made to the house. Characteristic of what happens in Dublin and to these Georgian houses like these in the 19th century is the next owner is a wine merchant in uh, Sackville Street or now O'Connell Street. And then typical of uh, what was happening in Ireland after the Act of Union of 1800 it becomes John O'Leary's National Club in I think the 1880s for people to socialise in and to make political speeches from as Parnell did from one of the windows and the front of this very house and as Maud Gonne did later uh, and then in I think in 1900 it becomes uh, headquarters of Dublin County Council so you've got that transition from great aristocratic house to comfortable middle class to institutional use and if you look around the Georgian terraces of Dublin the lucky ones have had exactly that kind of history in terms of
1: where we're standing now you've brought us to the attic why did you want to bring us
2: up here Very easy to answer that. I think this is one of the most beautiful rooms in Parnell Square. We're just under the roof. It's at the back of the house, so it looks out through its three windows. First of all, at a cliff face of the backs of houses in North Great Georgia Street. And between us and them, there would originally have been beautiful gardens and muse houses for your horses and carriage. Now it's full of panel beaters. Shops, looking out towards the back of North Great George Street, is one large curve bow occupying the full width of the room. And opposite that, at the other end of the room, is another bow. So the main space is contained between these two wide bows. And above, you have these this very deep coved, is the word, arched uh, space vaulting above the cornice, which rises to. A flat ceiling which is full of plasterwork. And the plasterwork is very typical of the kind of work you'd see in the 1750s. Vegetables, horns of plenty with flowers. And it just swirls around in this lovely, joyful, fresh, almost extempore bit of plasterwork. And you say to yourself, top floor, huge room, what's it for? I suspect it was bedroom. The reason for that is that a great four-poster bed uh, would have been placed in the bow opposite the window bow. And beside that bed, you'll see in the lost space between the back of the bow, as it were, and the next wall. Now, that will have led into a closet, a place where you could wash yourself. Quite a lot of entertainment went on in the bedroom. I
1: really can't let you away with saying that this fellow was entertaining in the bedroom. I mean, who entertains in the bedroom <laughs> in these days? So what would have happened?
2: What type of entertaining do you mean? I, I, I'll, refer to, I'll, refer, I'll refer to a tradition of, of bedroom entertainment, very typical uh, in French architecture. Where the whole house was designed according to what was called an apartment. So you had a, a reception room where everybody got into. Uh, then you had a, what was called an antechamber, which fewer people were admitted to. Then you got the bedroom, which only intimates of the owner were allowed into. And beyond the bedroom, the cabin, cabinet, or cabinet for your most intimate political shenanigans which of course is the origin of the word cabinet and and it's interesting i suppose that we have
1: a french connection with the ormonds and then to bring it full circle your mention of cabinet and cabinet and those most intimate and maybe secretive or important political decisions that downstairs in what then becomes the council chamber all these political decisions around around the development of the greater dublin region yes happened yes As Eddie McParland told us about the houses earlier days, what stayed with me was how this building became the home for Dublin County Council for much of the 20th century. And my curiosity led me to ask Dr Ruth McManus, one of the most knowledgeable people on the development of our post-independence capital city, about housing decisions made in this council chamber. Uh, The the stories are quite uh,
0: complex at times, but ultimately it comes back to local government and the decisions made in the chamber. What should be built, where it should be built, how it should be built, who should build it. Because sometimes they use direct labour, sometimes they get contractors in. But then, of course, you have to acquire the land if you don't own it. So the council then has to go about the, the land acquisition process. And that can be quite troublesome at times because... As you know, people aren't always willing to to give up those sites for housing. So you have a process of of an inquiry if you're going to have compulsory purchase. Um, And evidence will be brought, I'm looking back in the 1920s, and you have... The public health people coming in and saying, yes, we need to build houses here because we have X number of people dying of, of disease uh, caused by overcrowding in tenements. You have engineers coming in saying, oh, this is a perfect site for housing. Um, so so that all happens. Uh, but then the, the council has to get the money, somehow has to fund the uh, building process and then puts it out to tender.
1: So, Ruth, in talking about this process of, of the journey that that a housing estate makes from the ether, from public health decisions. You've brought a few bits pertaining to the history of these these types of decisions that come from this chamber out into the real world of where we live.
0: Well, here's an example from September 1925, um, and it's a headline that I suppose uh, could sit fairly well today, Plans But No Money. A meeting was held in the County Council Chamber here on the previous Monday, looking at plans for building 52 uh, four-roomed labourers' cottages in Balrothery. And uh, they also, and this is uh, talking to your thing about the type of housing, they approved of certain types of one-storey cottages for the rural districts, and then two-storey cottages for the towns. So they were all set up and ready to go. Uh, The problem was that they had applied for funding. They wanted to get a loan to build the houses. So they they looked to the National Land Bank for a loan of £10,000 to carry out the scheme. 52 houses, £10,000, different times obviously. Um, And of course the Secretary of the Bank wrote back and didn't think that this was a good proposition for the bank at all and were reluctantly compelled to refuse all applications of this nature. Well, the chairman of the council wasn't one bit impressed. Mm-hmm. He said, and these are our bankers. Where are we going to look for the money? And this was a constant refrain in the 20s, I'm afraid.
1: Ireland is newly independent. We're supposed to be able to clear up our slums now because we're we're free, we're decolonising. What is fascinating, though from what we're hearing is that the types of houses were of interest to these politicians, not just the money. So they are making decisions potentially around density, two storey for the town, one storey for the rural.
0: I think there had been a lot of discussion around slums and problems of the slums, well, going on for quite a long time. Um, And of course, we tend to think of the slums really as a problem of Dublin. We've heard a lot about the city. But we had slum issues right across the country. And local government throughout Ireland had to tackle those issues. And they're having to try and decide, well, where do we put these houses? What kind of housing is appropriate? What kind of facilities in the houses as well?
1: And I see you have a newspaper article from the 16th of March 1926. What have you got there? What, what's this all about?
0: Well, this is um, I mentioned that there, there was usually an inquiry before anything had to, was going to be built. And this was an inquiry which took place here at the offices of the Dublin County Council into a proposal for rural uh, district council housing. 98 labourers' cottages in the rural areas. Now, wait for it, folks. The rural areas of Blanchardstown... Castleknock, Fingless, Coolock, Drumcondra, and Hoth. Wow. So the inspector was hearing that uh, the engineers saying these sites are suitable, blah, 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 there's a need for these housing. The County Dublin Farmers Association uh, make their case and they say they're not objecting to the provision of proper housing, provided that the rates were not increased beyond the capacity of their industry. Decent housing is all right, as long as it doesn't affect the bottom line. But uh, the interesting thing here is that we have a large number of agricultural labourers from the Blanchardstown district coming in, and they give evidence against taking cottages on uh, Mr Ringwood's lands, on which it was proposed to build 20 cottages. One of the witnesses stated that he would rather camp out than live in a cottage on the proposed (laughs) site. (laughs) The land might be all right for tilling, but it would be too swampy in the winter. So that was that
1: well wow, so so the tendency to want to build on floodplains <laughs> is about 100 years old by the sounds of that. Yeah. But so so this is 1926.
0: So yes, so the 1920s was a time when housing really came to the fore because there had been so little building for a prolonged period of time because of the troubles First of all, you had the First World War, then you had the Rising, and you had all of the un- unsettled period. So, there are very little houses built for any classes. Um, so, when the, the 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 Free State comes into existence, one of the, f- the well, the very first act, practically, of the provisional government is to make funds available for housing. The 1924 and 25 Housing Acts are offering grants to to private people to build houses. So we're not just looking at targeting the slums, we're looking at a general provision of housing for all classes because there is such a shortage of housing the development of the Drumcondra scheme, which is uh, Dublin Corporation building housing. In fact, here, not for the poorest of the poor coming out of the slums. So wh- when Dublin Corporation decides to build its housing scheme in Drumcondra in the mid-1920s, again, they have to have an inquiry into the need and into, is it possible to, to purchase this house, is it appropriate? They say, well, there's 22,000 families living in single rooms, and we really need this. This scheme uh, we have a council for the city so they're representing the city's point of view in the in, in in this in 1927 saying at present one may as well try and live in an airplane as to get a vacant house oh, in dublin wow. I, I, the idea was it was such a, an outlandish idea you know it was so difficult to
1: find housing ruth mcmanus there Reminding us that much of what was discussed and decided upon relating to our homes in another time was not all that different from today. The workhouse is a physically significant place of home in the Irish historic landscape. And almost always, from its earliest history in the 1830s, the workhouse was a dwelling place of last resort. Workhouses were home for those who had nowhere else to go. Built for 600 inmates, as the residents were known, the workhouse at Callan in County Kilkenny housed over 700 people during its busiest and darkest years of the Great Irish Famine. Grainne Chaffrey is an internationally renowned conservation architect. Her practice is responsible for many landmark projects, among them elements of workhouse union at Callan. I asked Grainne to tell us about the original intentions of that workhouse
3: and the sort of home it would have been to those who entered it. Our involvement with the Callan Workhouse started by looking at a fragment of it, which was the administration block to the front, a journey of of getting to know a building and a building type. Our job was to take this building, which was a ruin, effectively, and give it a new purpose and a new function. And I suppose as one was going through that, then you began to look at The workhouse as a bigger entity and the workhouse as an architectural phenomenon and a social phenomenon on the on the Irish landscape and the urban landscape typically these were followed as a standard plan they varied slightly in size and maybe material from place to place they were kind of rigorous gray somewhat foreboding complexes on the edge of towns a lot of the towns have moved out to incorporate them now the Callan workhouse is six acres. Anybody thinking of their GAA pitch, it's almost five. Four, I should say, and five hockey pitches. The administration block is to the front, and people would be admitted into the workhouse through, through the administration block. And then you move back, depending on your gender, your age, your condition. You may end up in the female wing, the male ring, which then was connected via a chapel block and uh, infirmary to a rear block of smaller outbuildings. And they accommodated cookhouse, a bakehouse, and I suppose the ultimate dead house, the morgue, as well as, and using the language of the time, the idiot's wing so you were an inmate in the in the workhouse, you were a pauper. But I suppose ultimately it was a, a sad solution out of a terrible situation, but a solution that society found to make a home for people who had no home. It was a refuge and I suppose one thinks about all kinds of echoes and finding refuge in, in places. One thinks also about the way in which people who would have been living there, found a way of taming the architecture. Um, Whether George Wilkinson, the original architect of these workhouses, was thinking about how people might live in them or or accommodate, or what level of architectural empathy came, it's hard to know. But I suppose what we do know is is that the human comes and they shape a building in, in a way which adds a form to it, which people like me who deal with older buildings that have been had sometimes many uses sometimes one use that's part of what you have to carry through and bring through into into the new building so in fact when we were working on this fragment and its new use in something quite prosaic as a one-stop shop for local authority but a very important function of the late 90s early 2000s we were mindful to find and keep some of the traces and maybe add something Maybe to give something back in terms of the, the, the sadder history of the workhouse. So two little fragments, maybe one uh, a small little piece of graffiti, pencil graffiti, we found quite fragile uh, on the wall. And uh, I think if I remember correctly, it was, I am a carpenter. My name is Thomas Allen. I never had a smoke until I came to Callan. Anyway, humorful. So we kept it and we got the country's leading Walkins painting conservator to conserve it. it. was also a small little yard which we made into a garden and planted fruit trees. We thought maybe it was nice then that the people working in the building might have something for free and in that way I suppose architecture can give a, a little generosity. But the workhouse, there's such a, a, a strong feature of the urban landscape in Ireland today and they remain so and sometimes there are challenges what do we do with them in many instances they just continued on in use and were absorbed into health buildings very very interesting some were abandoned some partly reused Callan workhouse terrific to see it being used in such a creative way now and adding something back to the community something similar happening in Portumna as well and then I remember visiting the workhouse in Lismore, which is quite a bit outside the town. And a fragment of it, again, we were looking at the possibility of, of converting some of it to housing. Beautiful views out. I could admire the kind of spatial qualities of, of the building. You couldn't overlook the evidence of its former past, of course, but you're mindful to the future use, but perhaps somewhat poignantly beside it, and. You know, proximity or adjacency, a new nursing home, a kind of another institutional formal building with its own kind of structured order. And one thinks about the shift from one solution to another solution. And yet again, one hopes perhaps or or knows that within that there will be people shaping those buildings and those spaces in a way which architecture perhaps lends a hand to.
1: Conservation architect Grania Chaffrey on the workhouse, one of the locations representing another aspect of home in which a Davis Now lecture on making home is delivered. I mentioned earlier that this series also looks at how we capture the home creatively. Dr Anthony Roach is one of those people whose knowledge and passion for Irish theatre is long established. Here he explains the significance of home on the Irish stage, igniting the drama of theatre.
4: The home provides the perfect locale for family because it's concentrated. Uh, it enables the dramatist to start ahead. We all have families and that is an immediate situation that we can we can buy into, and so we take it from there. Anything else is going to be overly particularized but also overly diffuse. The workplace, abroad, different countries. Uh, so you have everything going on in the house. Chekhov added to this with his plays because he structured them around the family home with arrivals and departures and arrivals and departures from the home people going to the town people going into other societies is a brilliant way of opening it up but it keeps the focus on the dynamic of a small group of people who are bound up with one another and the tensions that surface with that and no other space than the home offers that kind of concentration or comes with the history There's a backstory in every family that will be unpacked in the course of the play, and that's inherently dramatic. The home is the microcosm of society, and given the changing political situation on this island and decolonization and all the rest of it, the result of that, and this is particularly true in the north, I think, for Catholics, was that people invested strongly in the home. That was the primary identification, since the state was kind of suspect or allegiances might be divided. I think people overinvested in the home. You have de Valera in the Constitution saying that the woman's place is in the home and so on. You know, it's a very loaded political term. And in a sense, the struggle in the home in Irish drama is to break the walls, to let in some air. It's usually stifling. It's usually patriarchal. It's usually been going on too long. This is certainly the case in Sean O'Casey's Juno and the Paycock in terms of the Irish home. Juno in particular works very hard to keep the home together. She is the only money maker, money earner that we see in the play. Johnny does not work because he is disabled by his part in the freedom fight for Ireland and he is quite, quite ill in it. Mary does work in a factory but she's on strike for better conditions. Now famously, they get a legacy and they get money. And in a very Irish way, they go mad. One of the things they do is that they redecorate the house, they improve the house, which is essentially one big room. And so in Act Two, the ordinary faded, worn furniture is gone and replaced by new, better furnitures and gugos. Now of course the legacy turns out to be untrue. The promise of money, doesn't come through again as happened in many uh, Irish occasions over the last few years and people are left in debt. And what happens in Act 3 is extraordinary because the stage is essentially stripped. Needle Nugent arrives looking for his money, takes the trousers. Mrs Madigan looking for her money takes the gramophone to the pawn shop. But then two repo men arrive and they take out all the furniture in the room. Uh, Johnny is also taken away by the two men in trench coats and will not be returned to the stage. Juno is taking her daughter out of the house. She's threatened with violence by her father and her, her brother is no less understanding of her plight. Finally, the captain and jocks stagger back into the house. It's completely empty. When, when the captain sits where the chair should be, he falls to the ground. And he comes out of the line we've been hearing all the way through the play. The whole world is in a state of chassis. So by the end of the play, O'Casey has deconstructed the home, so finally there is no home there, it, it, it's, it's non-existent, it's a myth. Now on the other hand, Marina Carr's on Raftery's Hill, it is the politics of the Irish home which is examined and which here has the Irish home as a place of cover-up, where secrets, lies and silence predominate. All the time. It is also famously a play about a father sexually abusing a daughter. Now, the home, the, the structure, the set in the play, it has minimal description. You know, there's, there's a kitchen, there's a stairs, there's an upstairs. But there's also an outside space. The family cannot be bounded by the walls of the home. The cowshed is occupied by the son, who is disturbed individual called dead, D E D. And he lives in the cowshed because he's so terrified of his father and will only come into the house quickly for his meals and a cigarette when he thinks the father is out. The granny lives upstairs and she is away with the fairies. She thinks she married beneath her, a very frequent theme in Irish drama, that really she should have married better. And she fantasizes about the aristocrats and so on. She could be living in France instead of this pigsty. And so she she always leaves. She comes down repeatedly in the play with the full suitcase and heads down the lane. And she does this 15 times a day, and they have to keep returning her upstairs. So you have this house, but the people are barely contained in it, and they're certainly not happy in it. The main two women, the 40-year-old daughter, Dinah, and the 20-year-old Cyril, are in the house. But that's not safe either, because the father is upstairs and he's prowling. He's out hunting, and he throws dead animals on the table. And this is what turns out to happen with the youngest when she and her boyfriend talk about inheriting the farm and getting money and so on. And he's going to turn her, teach her a lesson. It's a shocking scene and it doesn't cease to be shocking. But what happens in the second act is the cover up because everyone denies it. So rather than speak in public about what's happened to her and nobody comes to help her, she covers it up and they remain in this devastated house so it's certainly not happy families but there's also a sense in which the quest for home in Irish drama is not for a physical space it's for a kind of metaphysical idea of home that all of the characters in their own way are pursuing a place where they can authentically be themselves and it doesn't exist and it's certainly not we see in the stage but it doesn't stop them striving for it. Tony Roach there,
1: preempting our Davis Now lecture on contemporary theatre performance and home, recorded in a Donegal kitchen. That kitchen is in Glebe House and Gallery just outside Letterkenny. This Glebe House is a fine home, what might be termed a house of the middle size, and though not ordinary, everyday or common, this type of house is present in the Irish landscape, sitting in status and size somewhere between the successful farmer's domain and the big house. English artist Derek Hill bought the house and lived here later gifting it to the Irish state. Today it's open to the public. Adrian Kelly, Glebe House and Gallery curator sets out the kitchen scene at the heart of what was once Derek Hill's home. Well
5: I think um, the kitchen's in many ways the most interesting room in the house because the house went through a number of different lifes. If you like it was, first of all, it was a Church of Ireland rectory and this was the family part of the rectory. And when you consider that we're right on the edge of the Ulster plantation and um, also that the rector was very critical of the Derry evictions, it would seem like a very charged room theatrically, if you like. And then it's life as a hotel from 1900 till until about 1950. It went through the rising, the civil war, two world wars, Again, it was used as a public bar at night and it was a working kitchen for a hotel. Again, you know, a really obvious place to maybe write about, You're very charged again. It was actually only when Derek Hill moved in and staged it, you know, by putting the black and white tiles and the dresser, which is very, very staged. It's not like a real dresser at all, you know, because the, some of the most prominent things in it are Picassos. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and, and I sometimes wonder, did his housekeeper, Gracie, did she wash them in the sink, you know? <laughs> um, but also it, it's full of paintings by Tory Island folk artists. But it was actually at this point that it became inspiring to other artists. Since it's become, you know, a museum and moved on to its sort of curatorial life um, and, you know, we don't use the objects anymore and it isn't a working kitchen, you know, that's when someone like Frank McGuinness wrote a play based on this. It was called uh, Greta Garbo Comes to Donegal. Um, and we tried to we tried to stage it, but we couldn't because it was still in production. So we did Dolly West Kitchen. We did a rehearsed reading of it in this room. So all of a sudden, when it's, when it's probably least likely to have a, a theatrical life, you know, things like this lecture are happening here really it should be the time of the rectory and all the you know the tensions and the lives then and also when it was a hotel and all the fascinating things that would have happened those are the things the traditional things that you would think about maybe inspiring artists
1: adrian kelly there curator of glebe house and gallery county donegal the housing estate the suburban neighborhood the out of town development the edge city These are the familiar home places for so many of us. And so we come south to Limerick, to the neighbourhood of Moy Ross. Probably best known as the largest social housing estate in Ireland, built from 1973, it's now seeing development again with its regeneration programme. Our lecture, Dealing with Economics, comes from the Moy Ross Community and Enterprise Centre, a new building that stands proudly amongst the houses serving the neighbourhood. Veronica Dias is a writer and artist. While in Moy Ross, she shares how her family's history of home reflects the economic experience of many in terms of home ownership in Ireland.
6: Yeah, I suppose the, I started making Here and Now in 2012 as a result of being in negative equity and mortgage arrears. But the image that kept coming to me was last year when I was working in Ballymun I was standing outside the Axis and we were, myself and a colleague, Lauren Larkin, a a brilliant actor, um, were looking up at the hotel just adjacent to Axis and looking at children's toys in the window, bottles of milk and, you know, batch bread, and the actual lived reality of children sleeping in hotels and it's just so visceral. And so it's overwhelming kind of to hear the history of housing delivered. I suppose my personal experience is uh, three generations of lived experience of state policy. Um, So my grandparents would have started off in a tenement off Gardiner Street in Dublin City Centre. Um, My granddad and then when he married my granny, who also came from a tenement but a cottage, which she distinguished between, coming from a a a tenement and a a cottage in Rannell, private tenement housing. Then had a tenement property themselves when they started to uh, raise a family and then would have been moved out to Ballyferma, which was social housing. So what my uncle remembers from that time, because he was the oldest, is that there wasn't a shop or a bus route for miles. So when I was doing my research for here and now, I kept wondering, did we ever actually finish a social housing project? Did we put the infrastructures in place when we were building houses or did we just build a load of houses and hope for the best? And I think just even looking at regeneration and I would have worked a lot in Ballymun and Finglas and Whitehall and all those areas, um, and the northeast in our city, you know, my lived experience in the last 10 years as a facilitator um, and seeing the faces and the impact of this on people, we haven't really got to grips with regeneration. We haven't got to grips with actually creating communities, you know. And what tends to happen in my experience is that the communities and the people that are on the ground are, are at the mercy of these policies that kept, sh- kept shifting and changing. So my granddad moved to Ballyferma. He cycled every day from Ballyferma to where the Point Depot is now, which is miles, you know. And he stopped off at an Adam and Eve's church and all the workers on their bikes, left their bikes outside, went in and warmed their hands on the candles and had a cup of tea out of their flask and then went on to work, you know. So my kind of view at the moment, and the public finances have been supplementing the private sector constantly forever because he was working for a private company. He was on low wage, so therefore he had low income. So social housing and renting that was how, how they sustained themselves. And when the tenant purchase scheme came in, they felt obliged to buy for their children so that they would be passing on something that they didn't have themselves, you know. And in my experience, I bought through the shared ownership scheme in 2000 and I had a permanent pensionable job at the time. And then I went to university as a mature student, you know. Worked all through me four years in my degree. And then I got the opportunity to do a master's in London. And I couldn't rent my house as a shared ownership tenant. So I decided to do the right thing just as the economic crash happened. In one way you could say that you're still choosing as a a working class person between a house and education. It's very hard to see housing in a vacuum in the history of our state.
1: Veronica Dias on her own family story of home. Through the Davis Now Making Home lectures we also consider how our identities are defined by our homes and so it makes sense that our concluding talk questions the very notion that who we are depends on where we are. That the designs of our homes impact upon us deeply. In Nanonagle Place, our lecture explores this impact. Nanonagle Place in Cork City is a tasty architectural soup of varying building types and styles. For over two centuries, it was the home for an order of nuns. Sister Patricia O'Shea entered this presentation convent in the mid 20th century. And while her original home place and those ties continue to hold strong, making a new and eventual home in the convent reflects the process of who we are profoundly depends on where we are.
7: The convent was my second home. When I left my own home in the late 50s, I was very sad. I cried a lot and went around to every room and said goodbye to the house and to the home that had been so happy and so loving. I remember going for a walk on the terrace near the convent and I could see green fields in the distance and trees and that was, that was the, the, the photograph, I suppose, of home. I could kind of think that reminded me of my first home and uh, that meant so much. A new friendship grew up among us and we got on very well together so that became another home, my second home by degrees we got to know one another and we had a sister in charge who was a very open broad-minded person and uh, she even though we were enclosed she would bring in a book a few novels into recreation time and talk about it there was no television or anything at that time later I went to the training college to train to be a teacher to Carysfort in, in Dublin and I was there for two years but we came home at holiday time so that was another home and another experience where we had over a hundred and twenty sisters staying in one part of the college, and we got to know a whole lot of other people, you know, which was just a lovely experience. I missed the home in the convent, and I missed my own natural home, and of course we got home to the convent, then for holidays. The caretaker in the convent hired the taxi and brought us to the train station. None of the sisters could come to the railway station. And then he took out our bags and put them on the train. And then we went into the carriages in the train and we drew a curtain. Now you couldn't believe it now that there was a curtain in those carriages. So you were kind of cut away completely. So we had to have our snack inside with our drawn curtain. (laughs) It sounds so funny now when I recall it, yes you know the school was within the compound you see so therefore you were still enclosed. Parents came in and we knew an awful lot about what was going on from the parents you know they would come in with their problems and talk so that uh, you were getting to know something about what was happening in the outside world. There was of great joy when uh, after Vatican Council we were told that we could go home for two nights and three days. We never expected that because when we left home, we were never to go back again. You got up so early that morning so that you were collected, went home so that you were the full three days. So I was looking for the familiar and I couldn't see a trace of them. And the house had changed so much and modernized. And, but the, the, the welcome was so wonderful. I think it was 68 we went home for the first time. Yes, I think it was. Yeah. Sister
1: Patricia O'Shea there on her sense of home. And so across this Davis Now Lecture series, we bring you the story of making home. We bring you from venue to venue on history in an 18th century Dublin townhouse, on technology in a 19th century Kilkenny workhouse, on theatre performance in a Donegal kitchen, on economics and social policy in a Limerick neighbourhood, and on psychology and design in a Cork City former convent. In our next programme, hear the lecture Clearing Hovels and Making Homes, An Architectural History of Irish Housing. I'm Ellen Rowley. Do join me then. Thank you for being with us for this RTE Davis Now introductory programme, a series inspired by the iconic 20th century R.T. Thomas Davis lectures, which considered radio to be a university of the air, sharing the scholarship and creative thinking that shapes public decision making and makes sense of our present selves. And the RTE Davis Now Lectures podcast is available to download from wherever you get yours.